Hello, Dr. James K. Harris. Oh, hello, Dr. Nick Flores. How are you? I am well. Again, all things considered, I think, you know, I'm alive. I'm healthy. I'm not yet vaccinated, but I <sighs> am dreaming of the day. Um, we'll talk about it, I think, later on, because I have a COVID story to share with you that I don't want to get into up top because it'll distract us into my spiraling about like just like the politics of personal responsibility in the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. But I am COVID free and thrilled about it at a, at a new and heightened degree. And I'm, I'm more excited to be COVID free than I was last week. Uh, and so that's all very cool. And, you know, also, just like it, I, I'm trying to figure out how to set a Google alert so that if a vaccine ever becomes available, like they'll just tell me because I feel like at this point, it's just become a part of my day that like when I wake up, I check and see if I can get a vaccine. We'll get and then email. around like noon, I throw about a half hour into my life of just like, how do I, who do I, literally, who do I have to fuck? Because I will <laughs> just give me the vaccine. This is highly inappropriate, but it was hilarious. Uh, I found it one of the another podcast that I listened to called uh, Food for Thought, T H O T spell thought. Um, they're, they're real cutesy over there. Um, but they reposted a, a Twitter or a tweet rather um, that said simply, I'm afraid of needles. Why can't they just? Why can't the vaccine just get nutted in me? And I was like, oh, <laughs> wow, like that's really funny. But I'm also afraid of needles. Um, I so mean, we'll are we offering? Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, so, this is so learning on the, the job, lines, I feel like, on that note. Th this is learning on the job. <laughs> uh, we're in two queer of color academics, relatively new to the scene um, on the tenure track, discussing topics ranging from, uh, politics of higher education, uh, the things that are just like annoying us in higher education in general, uh, you know, some commentary sometimes on the, uh, the world at large, if you will. Yeah, just the state of things, just, you know, all that. And it's, it's, it's a real all that. And there's a lot of all, this week was a real like, oh, I see you higher ed. I see we're getting messy this week. Uh, and so there's like a lot of ground to cover and I'm excited to dive into the mess. But before we do so, a friend of mine sent me this like, stack of getting to know you cards that are all just random questions you can ask your I guess students at the beginning of a zoom class to get we them love engaged a good and, camp counselor session oh uh, I, I right? love going back to camp if you it's can't a camp break moment. that ice what are you even doing mm. and so in the spirit of breaking that ice I'm going to give you what is one of my favorite questions from the stack of questions from that like ask them to your students for our check-in this week uh if you could have a camera anywhere in the world where would it be and why so I, I love this question, but also it's assuming you can see, first of all, um, okay. <laughs> so you know, I just want to call attention to maybe it's got closed captioning of the question. Okay. All right. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll think, we'll think broadly about the camera, but you're only um, getting the quality of like Netflix describes to you what you're seeing on screen. Like expect that. Noted, noted. Okay. Let's see. I, you know, honestly, um, there is such a, an impulse these days for like space, right? And for things that are happening beyond this realm, this globe, literally this globe. Um, but there's so much that we don't actually know that's still going on here. I am so curious yet terrified of 
the bottom of the ocean and I want to know what's down there. And I just okay. really, really like before we, before we start sending people off into space and before that becomes, before that frontier becomes colonized by white people, I really, really want to know what is at the bottom of the ocean. And I, I want to know, but I, but it's kind of like, I'm, I'm covering my eyes wanting to know, like I'm watching a scary movie. So I think I would like to see kind of visual representations as well as descriptors of what is happening down there. That's my answer to the check-in. What about you? I, honestly, that's my second answer. Like that's my, if I'm being a nice person answer. Cause my not being a nice person answer is obviously like I want inside of somebody's like someone importance, like safety deposit room. I want a camera in like Deutsche Bank safety deposit room where like all the rich people come just to open their boxes and like, just to see what, I just want to see what's in the boxes. Like, I just want to know, like what do the alarmingly rich think is worth locking away? But like, if I were not being altruistic, then also I would love to know what's at the bottom of the ocean. But like, I just, I need to know. I need it from, I imagine that in there is the answer to like a lot of unsolved crimes and like mm -hmm. just all manner of just like, it's, uh, you can't even begin to imagine how, how satisfying. I mean, it sounds like you have begun to imagine, which I totally appreciate. Endlessly, endlessly. And you know, uh, this is this week in Eat the Rich. <laughs> Indeed, um, a kind of informal segment, not an informal through line, if you will, of the podcast. Um, Just until we do, I want us all to be on the same page here. When the day comes, no ambiguity, eat the rich. Mm. On that note, how about we traverse into our next segment, which we, which you have lovingly referred to as uh, failing better. Oh, and this week, truly, in the spirit of Godot, I, I have ever tried and constantly failed. But this week, I am failing slightly better. I So if you, it, those of you who had our access to our last podcast know that I'm uh, advertising, we are advertising around a job now to come and work for us at CLAGS, the Center for LGBTQ, formerly the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies at CUNY, hence the name CLAGS, uh, where I'm a board member of the board of directors. It's like... As of recently, also apparently the events committee co-chair. And so like, this is Woo. very much like, a, this is what happens when you speak too loudly at a meeting type thing, where it's like, I asked one too many questions and someone was like, do you wanna just be on the committee that makes the answer? And, and my impulse in this moment is always to be like, hell the fuck no. <laughs> I have like 10,000 other things I could be doing, but I'm trying to like, you know, embrace the tenure track of it all. I'm trying to lean in, I'm trying to say yes, to more my year of yes right i'm trying to maybe not a whole year but like i'm trying to just like try out a semester not being of afraid yes. of responsibility a week or two maybe a month <laughs> but like but like just try it out what does it feel like what is it and so i've been trying it out and i gotta say like i don't hate it i the my deep dark secret is that I am my mother's child and my mother is a control freak. And I love my mother, but this is, I would say like the one thing about her that if I could, if I could do something differently, this would be the thing. Like my mother is a person who like will not let you make a decision because she has to make it. Like when we had a graduation party, my mother threw me a graduation party that was truly just like a shrine to her and the way she imagines me in the world. 
sidebar, I totally loved your graduation party. It was held in Dayton, Ohio. And I am just, I will never forget the, the kind of decorative things that were around. My favorite though was your printed off dissertation and parts of it all as a on table the, runner on a table when runner. I tell my you, it favorite. was so literal. It was so like on like, oh, that's right. This is this is the set dressing to a party about me that you are throwing. <laughs> so like, I love her. I love her with all my heart. She's actually my favorite person. I adore her. But like my mother is a control freak. And so I try really hard to not be that because I know that buried somewhere in my DNA is a person who will absolutely need to be in charge of everything all the time and so like my impulse historically has been like be the person who is absolutely willing to let somebody else be in charge like you don't have to be in charge it's not there is no we all get to the same place we're all going the same place like you don't have to be the leader uh, and so I'm trying to learn to not be afraid of being the leader and I think in part you know it's like being queer people of color in the academy like we're never supposed to be the leaders and when we are it feels weird and so I'm trying to learn to be less weirded out by being in charge and you know an additional layer that I heard emerging and thank you for sharing but an additional layer is that oftentimes as you know Sarah Ahmed's work has so kind of accurately and kind of astutely observed, right? Like the kind of work that queer people of color or just like queer, like what is what is deemed diverse or diversity work in the academy in particular, right? Is often on the shoulders of the diversity workers, right? And so, you know, I don't think, I, I think that there are, that what has emerged in your observation and your conversation about, you know, wanting to embrace yes and wanting to, you know, learned learn, leaning into being a leader but also you know being aware of your own kind of disposition in wanting to control things and everything you know like there's also this added and real layer that you know we sometimes are taken advantage of or the labor that we do do is un, not compensated right and so it's expected of us right and so you know Ahmed's favorite you know kind of, uh, kind of argument is that you know diversity work falls on the diverse shoulders and then that's often you know not compensated it's it, it, it underthanked um but it's also kind of expected um but uh, from multiple angles right from institutions or from organizations but also from us right because there's we feel like we need to um or that that, that we need to in order to you know get tenure and promotion or that it needs to be a part of our portfolio so you know i think that the issues and concerns that you raise are valid and important and you know, I, I think for both of us, we will be expected and are expected to have some type of service oriented uh, alongside the university, right? That is external. And th that, that is also a reality. Um, but, I, but I think that, you know, we have the, op there are options, I think, to choose what we want to engage with. And I think that it's quite noble um, with CLAGS and it, it's no longer called CLAGS as you mentioned? No, it's still called CLAGS. It's just, it no longer stands for lesbian and gay studies. It stands for LGBTQ. I see. So it doesn't stand um, for anything. I see. Um, you know, name, what's, what's in a name? What is it? Um, so, you know, I think that the work that is being conducted there is, is excellent. In fact, like I can attribute some of my own professional successes to conferences hosted by CLAGS and by the network that is there. Um, you know, I've met some amazing scholars who have like become mentors and become dear friends and have, you know, got my, who have my back. So all of this is to say, I think that you are 
you, it sounds like you are in the right place. Things are aligning and, you know, you might want to, I would suggest maybe looking at this opportunity less as wanting to control things and more maybe like what kind of connections will you be making? And, you know, you'll be the, you'll be the contact person, which is exciting. And then you're also going to be the connector, right? You are connecting with people, but then you are becoming the connector, which is uh, an exciting kind of point. And I love, personally, I just love all of that stuff. I, I, I love networking, uh, which is something I know a lot of people do not enjoy, um, but I really do. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about your adventures and this journey. I thank you and I appreciate you and I genuinely appreciate and hear you reminding me that it is not my job to be in control. Um, and so I will take that with me and try to remember it. Because uh, it is one of those sort of like the buck stops here if nobody's doing it, who's going to do it kind of jobs. And so in that in that mode, my again, I am my mother's child. My mind goes to, oh, that means I'm in charge. Uh, and so I'm trying really hard to not be in charge because like, you know, who cares? People care. We care. You care. I care. We, we care to an extent. A scale, to an extent. If you will. Right, right. There, there what I scales, want is for everybody to win. Care. I don't care who's standing where when it happens. Amen. Amen to that. That's also a lesson that I'm learning, right? Like I don't need, I personally do not need to be at the forefront of XYZ conversation or movement or whatever. I, you know, my role will be the support, right? I'm in the background. Like I'm the Absolutely. one doing the things you know, making the connections behind the scenes to help enable the people who need to be up front are there. So, and as um, Stacey Abrams day will remind us that work matters. Like being behind the scenes is important. Utterly important. Utterly it is important. essential. It's essential. Indeed. Indeed. Um, you know, I don't know that I have any kind of failing betters personally. Um, I, I would say that there have been a constellation of events that have happened over the past few weeks that have prompted uh, some kind of shifting in deadlines for me, it, writing deadlines in particular, um, which has been actually quite productive. Uh, as you know, I'm released from teaching and you know, there's a lot of unstructured time uh, or there's, there's, there's time that is unstructured that I am having to structure. And so um, sometimes you know, it, it, it is about deadlines that are imposed externally, but then, you know, I'm learning that sometimes these external deadlines are imposed and they're not anticipated or you weren't expecting them and, you know, kind of rolling with the punches and shifting, you know, what, what was on the calendar and having, you know, to kind of make room for other things um, is something that I've been dealing with over the past few weeks and in this past week in particular. And so, you know, Full disclosure, I will say I've had pretty, pretty narrow tunnel vision over the past week. Um, so, you know, my, my observations about the world around me um, are quite limited, if only because I had been so consumed in some of these projects that I'm working on. So, um, you know, but, but I have the opportunity, I have the time to do that, I have the space. So, you know, I, I guess in, in a kind of failing better, it, it'll hopefully, uh, benefit me in the future, right? The work that Nick is doing now will benefit hopefully Nick in the future, which I think is what, you know, is, is ultimately the main goal or the, the, the point with many of the things that I'm working on currently. I heard someone say this thing this week that like has stuck inside my brain and I can't stop thinking about it. And it was like, capitalism has tried to convince us that the worst thing you can sell is your body, but it's actually your time. And like, I've been thinking endlessly about just like 
what an incredible like privilege and luxury it is to be able to just like pause and think. And so like, I, I love that for you. Just like time in which to process and like, as Zadie Smith would say, grow souls. Mm. That reminds me, I need to put some Zadie Smith on the on the the calendar. I need to make some time for her, um, likely in the summer, but thank you for that reminder. I mean, black women, is there anything they can't do? No. Uh, friend, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> I have to, uh, we have some disingenuous arguments. It's, I told you, it's been just like a messy, this is the segment, we call it disingenuous arguments. And then the idea of this segment, right, is that the world is filled with bad faith arguments made by bad faith actors. And that most of the time, it's simply not worth engaging with. But like, we made a podcast, so we've got the time. And here we will take the time to just like unpack what about this specific thing is so profoundly annoying. And I think I have to start with the 800 pound gorilla. Is that the right metaphor? Dunno, uh, because I can't, I have been turning this one around in my head since I sent it to you like Monday or Tuesday. And I, I have every thought and every feeling about it. Uh, and so by this point, you maybe have heard about the Cornell West and Harvard drama. So if you haven't, Cornell West exists. He's black and he writes things about race and some of them, Democracy Matters, are actually tectonically important. There was a before that book was written and an after that book was written. And it's worth noting how deeply that book matters. And then a lot of it is like that nigga showing up on Joe Rogan's show. And it's like hard for me to reconcile the two with one another. But like, so Cornell West exists and Harvard exists. It's a school that white people think is like the excellence institution. Like if you want, when you say Harvard, you mean smart. Those of us in the know, know that Harvard was primarily historically just like a place that existed so that slaveholders could have like university credentials. Uh, after slaveholders, they've gone on to a battery of war criminals. Like it's just, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Uh, and so Harvard exists as a school. And so Harvard apparently has decided they're not gonna tenure Cornell West. Cornell West asked for tenure. He went up for it. He chose to go up for tenure. He doesn't have to apparently. He's the endowed chair of some department, but only on an X number of years contract, which is not the same thing as tenure. And so he said, y'all better tenure me. And Harvard said, hell the fuck no. And here we all are. Why buy the cow when the milk is free? <sighs> And but also, like, how I, dare you, after 15 years of begging these white men to milk you, turn around and go, wait, y'all know that milk ain't free? Cornacious. <laughs> All right. You know, there are, there, there, are, there are layers here. And, and you know, Harvard, uh, I kind of want to circle back to a few things that you said about kind of the that particular institution, Harvard as a particular institution. Um, Cornell, even at Cornell West, as a, as a kind, of, uh, kind of institutional figure for you know, really progressive black, you know, thought in the United States. Um, um, straight black well, men. He's straight black men. So we don't, I, I, I'm going to push back against really progressive because straight black men. Straight black. Uh, sure. Yes. N noted. Taken. Um, so Harvard, right, is, as, a, as a synonym for elite, smart, whatever. And then I, li I like the way that you kind of dispelled that. Um, and you know, to be sure, every institution of higher education in the United States has its own kind of histories of either colonialism or slavery, or you know, uh, being on stolen land and like actively participating in the decimation of like native and indigenous peoples today, right? Like this is 
this is this is all of us this is this is this is this is not you know I, I think that institutions with longer reigns with like longer time frames um and you know th- that that also have their roots in kind of religion uh it, i have a kind of particular uh historical uh not precedents but uh they have a lot more i think uh the further back into American history you, you go, go, the more impossible the it is that you are not involved in slavery. Right. Um, and kind of genocide, right, uh, of, uh, on multiple scales and um, among multiple people. Um, so, you know, I want to say that Harvard is also, and I need to double check this, but they were looking for a, an endowed chair of like ethnic studies not too long ago. And I'm not sure that that was ever... Uh, pursued or if that was something that you know the 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 stop was halted but that's also the site of the recent um scholar uh dr garcia peña who was also denied tenure and and her work is particularly relevant to this conversation because she is uh afro-latina or writes about uh latinidad and blackness in particular which is um which are often uh thought of or um, uncritically assumed to kind of be kind of mutually exclusive from one another, right? That if you're talking about Latinidad, you're not talking about blackness, or if you are talking about blackness, you're talking about you know blackness in a particular way. Um, Professor Garcia's or Garcia Peña's work does this really amazing uh, kind of conversation building um, among these field logics to bring in kind of closer conversation Latinidad and blackness. Um, and you know, so she was famously also denied. Um, tenure, and there have been entire symposium, uh, symposia around her and her work, um, you know, and even even kind of casually, uh, I was in a kind of a meeting with some faculty uh, not too long ago, and, you know, the topic of tenure and promotion came up here at UIUC, for example, um, and, and a kind of passing comment by, by a senior colleague who is tenured, um, and I is actually a full professor, uh, made this kind of like comment about, you know, we're not like the Ivies where you're going to, you know, do all of this work, you know, put all this labor in and then, pretend, you know, likely not get tenured or, you know, that that process is is so much more um, stringent, I guess, is the word I would use. Um, th- there are others that probably could come to mind, but so yeah, you know, th- yeah. but there's something to be said about, um like kind of faculty of color in particular, right? Black, Latina, Latino, Latinx faculty. Um, you know, across the board, right? Like I think it's, there There are single digit, if not less than single digit percentages of like tenure faculty of color across like the university or across the United States, right? And so, um, I really feel like I should have like, I, I can, we can definitely post these stats up uh in the kind of show catalog but but the backdrop of this conversation part of the backdrop of this conversation is that you know faculty of color are actually not tenured or you full professors in the united states and so uh there's this so, so if you're not tenuring figures like cornell west right like and so I'm not trying to kind of make this slippery logic between like if, if, if it's not him, then it can't be any of us. But like, I think that there's a, a kind of point of conversation that is uh, revealing um, both of Harvard and of uh, Dr. West, but 
I'm. I guess for me, the pushback I have is that like, I think that you and I are both people who don't have any particularly direct relationship to Harvard, right? Like we didn't go there. Like none of my particularly close friends went there. I know like one or two people from grad school who went from Harvard to Ohio State. And so like we knew each other, but that's about it. But like, it is a place that I am aware of by reputation, by conference and by faculty. And to know that about Harvard is to know that its reputation is as a school that is aggressively proud of tenuring no one. That's their whole shtick. They're like, we want you to come up in here, work your ass off for us for 10, 15 years if you can. We collect all of your intellectual property and you don't get tenure. Like that is the deal you signed up for when you went to Harvard. What I find so wildly frustrating about someone like Cornell West is like, and the argument he is ostensibly making out here in the world to all of us dragging us into this is like, I don't need Harvard, Harvard needs me. Bitch, if that's true, leave. Like I can I can give you a list of 75 schools that desperately do need you, mine mm. included. Like if it's not about the money, come teach people who actually need you instead of war criminals children. Like what is this fight about? I'm not about to get up in these streets marching so that Cornell can stay at Harvard forever. What a stupid thing to ask me to care about. <laughs> I don't mean to, to react like that, but that's it. That's really it. And I, thank you for boiling it down like that. Like truly. Um, yeah. Wow. Like truly, truly leave, leave right now, leave yesterday. Why are you there? Can I give you a list of all the schools in you know, America that would like lose their shit if they could get somebody with Cornell West public profile and HBCU? Like, I'm not about to cry for HBCUs. We have our own beef. We'll talk about that on another day. But like an HBCU would have their profile exploded if that dude who can get on Joe Rogan's show came to talk to them. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be at Harvard because that's what rich white people think smart looks like. And that matters to him. And I don't know why I'm supposed to care that those are your priorities. Yeah. I, you know, I, so there's there, there are layers here that I'm not challenging, but that I think complicate the conversation too, especially around, so the profile around Cornell West, because there's like this uh, kind of public scholar persona that he also has that I think um, it does, um, for whatever reason, uh, accrue this kind of privilege and this kind of uh, uh, privilege, right? Because of heart, because of the, the name association. And, and interestingly, if you, if you, have, do you watch uh, John Oliver? Um, by chance. Um, so this past week, it was really funny. I mean, I just thought of this. Um, there are these like tiny segments in between his segments that he does. And this past week, this past Sunday was about uh, people who say that they went to Harvard, like who are like newscasters or, you know, people uh, on on um, television medias. And and it was just a segment, like a two minute segment of people like, well, I went to Harvard. I, you know, mm -hmm. you know, I went to Harvard. I went to, so it's funny because it, it also is like so, it's ubiquitous, but then it, like, whenever, you know, you have a segment in like John Oliver, for instance, that's like pointing that out, it becomes so like, uh, you become aware of it's kind of uh, the hollowness of it sometimes, right? Especially for those of us who are aware of, of the, the kind of politics of hierarchy in higher education, right? Um, so, but I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree, like 
you know, asking us to go out into the streets or, you know, to, to, to care deeply about your being tenured at an institution like this is, um, tone deaf to say the least. So to, 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 to many, right. Um, you know, as we enter into whatever phase of the kind of job market that we are entering to a la, you know, vis-a-vis the pandemic, vis-a-vis the, the recession over a decade ago, right. It's like, dude, like you could, you'll be, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Else. So, you, you know, can just cash your PBS me. checks. So speak on it. Speak hmm. on it. Okay, okay, okay. Um, this is so I brought up Sarah Ahmed earlier, and she's actually an interesting figure because she decided to not kind of affiliate with an institution anymore, and is kind of living her life as an academic, kind of a. I don't. I'm, I'm trying to think of of an appropriate maybe fra- a phrase or a term, but it's like kind of renegade or just kind of um, kind of like Gloria Antaldúa for a while was also someone who was not affiliated kind of professionally with an institution, but she was like making it work. She was a writer and she was committed to, you know, she was committed to living her life in a way that she, a femicide that she wanted in the way that I think Sarah Ahmed is doing, but in a way that is is revealing of like Cornel West's uh, interests. Like what does he actually interest. care about? Yeah, like what, do yes. you, like what do you actually care about? And so, Absolutely. you know, there are figures that do exist. Mind you, they're not, um, there are few and far between and someone like Sarah Ahmed, who is a prolific scholar, right? Like I wouldn't be able to, like Nick Flores would not be able to be like, I decided that I'm not gonna be a part of an institution anymore. And I'm just gonna kind of like, I mean, maybe I could actually, let me not limit myself. The options for him are not be a part of an institution or go out into the wilderness. It's like fight like this publicly over whether or not Harvard lets you stay forever, no questions asked, or just go somewhere else. They offered him, instead of tenure, a 10-year contract as endowed chair that was worth like millions of dollars. And look, I get the point he's making. They're like, that's not tenure. And this is the same school that tenured Alan Dershowitz. It can tenure me. But like, again, this is the hill? Like, do you... (laughs) Cornacious, it's a pandemic. Did you hear about the pandemic out here? Did you know? Did you know that 90% of people in grad school right now are never getting jobs? Like, did you know how brutal it is out here? And this is really the hill? You know, I, so many hills. So, so many hills. I just, I can't, I can't with people pretending that they're going to somehow fix Harvard from the inside. Like, I'm not often a big advocate of the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house type logic. Because I think, like, if we genuinely believe that, we're fucked in America forever. Because, like, it's just such a nightmare. But I do think there are institutions that have no interest whatsoever in doing better. And you pretending you don't know that is just you agreeing to collect a check while also assuaging your sort of, like, liberal values. Like, oh, I'm in it, but I'm not of it because I'm trying to change it from the inside. What are you changing? What's different? They didn't tenor your ass. Truly. Uh, there it is. There and it so is. On the note of like, what is this place? Who are y'all? What is this? Why are you? You tried it. You tried it for real? Are you? This, are you, go. Are you, are you looking at the, the recent job advertisements? Um, one of which may be found on the Chronicle of Higher Ed's job ad. We'll put it in the show um, notes because it's still up. And every once in a while, it's an edit. right there. And it looks like Northeastern University yeah, is yeah. asking 
for a visiting scholar in women's genders and sexuality studies. Quote, I'm just gonna quote the second paragraph of this job ad. Quote, visiting scholars provide their own financial support during the residency, though the program may support modest research expenses. Scholars will have access to the Northeastern University Library and to shared workspace. This is in parentheticals, so long as public health protocol permits in parentheticals, as well as email privileges and are invited to participate in all program events and to collaborate with colleagues through research clusters, reading groups, a feminist writing collective, and affiliated seminars. I'm gonna just stop right there, end quote. This okay. is a job, this, this is a job for feminine, like ostensibly someone who's down with feminism, right? Like a, someone a, a, who will a, be working in the women's in gender, the gender and sexuality, sexuality says, Yes, 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 yes. So, I, every- At a school that advertises budget, itself as the editorial home of signs, the journal of women and culture and society. Also that. Um, so, providing your own financial support during the residency. Okay, so my it, question to you, what about this could you not get if you didn't have this job? Like access to the university library, shared workspace, so long as public health protocol permits, which means you can't go to your office because who can, uh, as well as email privileges, and you're invited to participate in events and collaborate with colleagues. And you can go to a reading group. So it's the, e so it's it's like, the it's email? Like the email. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's a title. It's a, it's a title, but I might not even be working with, for instance, this, the, well, it's the editorial home, but it's Oh yeah, not, no, you're it's not, not going it's anywhere not, near signs. What? Right. So, <laughs> you're not like, being, they just, someone who the works draw. there does that. Um, the title, the, um, no, I mean, it, I'm stumped. Like, I mean, it's, I it, it, it's not shocking, but it's also like, wow. Um, I'm a little shocked. I'm a little shocked. I think I'm still a little shocked somehow. I guess it's just cause like, look, we've said it on this show before, grad school's for the married and the independently wealthy and everybody else can just go fuck themselves. But like, this is so explicitly, everybody else could just go fuck yourself. That it's just like, it's wow. How, who, how, one year of not getting paid, but you have to pay your own bills and move to this small college town. And so you can use the library? To what? I, loss. And it's, it's, so it looks like it's also a, it's a postdoc? A, <laughs> no, uh, faculty position. Yeah, They're yeah, yeah. calling it a postdoc. Postdoc. They're faculty, listing it yeah. as a postdoc because they got dragged too much for listing it as a job. Well, I mean, visiting scholar, I guess, it, you know, that 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 title or that kind it's of It's not even heading, that. It's... It's I, not even that. It is truly you, just the university owns your intellectual property. That's it. We have the right to your intellectual property and in return, you can use our library. Not all of it. Dirt, definitely not all of it. Like, I guarantee you, if you send out five you to... ILL requests, they're going to send them back. Like, you can have two of these books. Mm -hmm. And you do not get access to signs. You have to pay for that. Um, 
I can't, I just, the fucking go. And so like this went viral, which is how I found out about it. But like, I think what I found most revealing about that was how many of the faculty from the school tried to come out and defend it. And it was just like, oh no, take this L. There's nothing defensible about this. Right. It was just like a whole bunch of people being like, well, I mean, you know, at least you get like affiliation and these academic times are really hard. So why not pile on to the exploitation? What these the logics. Fuck? These these perverse ass logics truly, you know. Like and, and you know Oh my God. So, right. So so we're commenting on this. I think one of my biggest fears is that like I will I I never want to become a sim like a, a defender of this type of anything. But it's like how who knows where we're going to be in 10 years, James? Like what happens if we're like in similar situations where we're not, you know, like then we, I, we can't know the future this as a totem to return to. And we can revisit how we felt about that moment. Look, we're allowed to grow and change if new information. Certainly, certainly. So. I just, I, but it just, like what piece of information could make though. this okay? This is, this is like awful in light of, you know, the dismantling of tenure across different institutions in the U.S. The, the pandemic, the, the pandemic, you know, basically it has been for a year rationalizing um back you know budget cuts of all shapes and sizes and that are and also like... that that affect that 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 directly affect uh people like our scholarship or scholars in our fields um it's there's a war it's, it's not even a it's... silent war anymore it's just a war on uh ethnic studies gen you know uh, identity and affinity departments, um, and it's just it's it's just an all-out war, and I and I think it's it's always been here. It's I think it's always present, um, and some institutions I think like to pat themselves on the back because they you know will have entire departments or have programs and things. And, you know, and yes, those are important, necessary. Um, I'm not coming for them. I'm coming for the fact that it it is it is a slow crippling of it is a slow burn it is a it is an assault on scholars like us it's absolutely that. blank and that's it's absolutely that it's absolutely that like it is a it's making sure that the fluke that was our managing to find a way into this place never happens again like, cause in a world where, cause, and I keep thinking about like, what's gonna happen is someone can afford to take this job and they will take this job. And because they take this job, they will get access to all kinds of new resources and opportunities that people who can't afford to take this job will never get. And so the next right. generation of scholars is gonna be people who could afford to spend a fucking year working for free for a university with a $1.5 billion endowment. And if you are not a person who can afford to work for free for a fucking year, then you just don't get to work here. And it's like, don't tell me about diversity. Please don't tell me that we need to go recruit brown students. Stop doing shit like this. Mm. Truly. Yeah, I mean, th that point is especially taken and I think especially felt, right? Like, who, who, who by virtue, who by sheer, just like the way the job is set up, the job, right? Is it even, if you're not getting paid for it, is it a job? <laughs> right. Is it a job? Like, I don't know. I mean, like, I think whatever it is because you can is. still get fired. So, but like the, what, what already marks the boundaries and the barriers of people automatically once they've read this, right? Who 
are not, again, independently wealthy, married, or don't have kind of financial networks of support that could take care of them for this year or for the tenure of whatever, how long this so-called job is, right? So um, September 2021 through May of 2022, but you're welcome to stay through the summer. Living, paying your own bills, no money. Mess. Absolute mess. Sorry, I was cutting you off. You were making a point. No, I mean, it, it, it echoes, you know, what we've been, what you said, and also just that I wonder how much of this will become normalized in the years to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Like what, like this how much, like how is science and science how, is a reputable ass journal. How is this like the dominant, the first domino in many to come where it's like, well, do you want our affiliation? Cause that's what we have to offer you. And you know, and for, for scholars, that is important. It will be, it is right. Like it's, you, you how told the fuck me, else are you supposed to get hired? You, you told me, um, when I was on the job market last I guess two years ago, technically at this point, you know, I had a visiting assistant professorship. You know, I had that title. I had this title at institution that I think did end up helping me get the position where I am. And it's true. Like you said this, I've been saying this, you, you said this and it was, it's easier to get a job once you have one. Right. And so there's this kind of, there's also this layer here of there's a, there's a desperation, right? Not only on the part of that institution um, and who knows how, what that desperation looks like, right? Um, but on the part of the people who, are, who would be applying for this or who are, uh, who understand that there are term limits to your um, marketability, right? Like I, I, had a, I had a dear friend whose Instagram story recently said very much this is like, I'm getting, reject you know it's it's not actually it's rejection season right we think it's like the job market season but it's actually just rejection season and like <sighs> i'm on my third year on the job market and what most people don't realize is that after about five years you kind of get kind of timed out right because there are because of the way that this cycle works and the way that the this machine works and churning out phds right you know so this is also a conversation about the ethics, the, the ethics of producing and training out PhDs when there are literally like no jobs, right? Um, which I, I think we've discussed on this podcast <laughs> last, before. Last time. <laughs> so it's, it's really, it's, it's frustrating because, you know, I, I, people are desperate. Um, it's just, and it's, it's only going to get worse. And this is, this is a signal in that direction. I don't want it to be, I, I, I don't want to be naive and think like, oh, well, you know, maybe this is an one offshoot, but you know, how much, how many of these ad, these types of ads where people will be expected to pay, uh, you know, to provide their own financial support are going to be <laughs> kind of normal, right? That euphemism deserves an award. And no, no, okay. Okay. Also, we should point out that provide their own financial support is in bold. This is oh, bold. Oh, no, and that's in new. That's new. That's new because they when they first put this ad up before it went viral, it wasn't in bold. And so this was their solution to like everybody drag them is they were like, "We'll just bold the part where we ask you to bring your own money." So you can't say we didn't tell you. As though that oh, So it's just like a real like get me off this ride. I don't I don't want to be here anymore. I'm tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> just, I hate it here. Oh um, my god. Well, James, shall we take a quick break? 
I think we almost have to. I, I think we need to, yeah. We are back, 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 I never, back again. Every time. I feel like there has to be a, a response and I have nothing. And I just, my brain wants to jump in, but then I don't know how to appropriately, as they say in improv, yes, and. You know, the thing a lot about improv as a I, part of my book on play. I like play and I like improv. And between you and I, I took an improv class in undergrad uh, with actually one of our dear friends, um, Christopher. Um, we were just, so we actually took a theater Everything class together. That story makes sense. And it was so much fun. So, so we, um, it was an improv class and, or it was a theater class and we did improv games and I was completely unaware of all of these things. But we, that was the class I discovered, yes, and that is now actually a part of my pedagogical approach. And I do it in my class all the time. I even do it online in my virtual classes. You know, I, you know, students will say something or, you know, make a contribution to the conversation. And sometimes if I don't have kind of a response to what they've said or, you know, a reiteration or an interpretation of what they said, I will say yes. And, and then, you know, over the years, I think I've had three students who've like come up to me after a class and be like, are you using yes and as an improv? And I'm like, don't tell anyone, <laughs> but yes, yes, I am. Cause it, I mean, it is, it's good. I, like, it, and I will yes and that to say that I've made my students do zip zap zop. I don't think I know that one. <laughs> it's, it is truly just like, it's, it's the same. It's an improv game that you often do in giant groups of people where like the, everybody has to choose a word zip zap and zop. And you sort of like say one clap and then you look at someone and that person has to jump in and do the next one this is basically just about being like aware and present in the situation so someone says zip you have to zap and then someone else zaps but you look to the people so that they know who's going next it is an unzoomable game uh well let's zippity do da zippity zap zoop zap or whatever it is on to this zip, next zap, zap. <laughs> zip, zap, on to zap. our next segment which is what you thinking friend so these days, I am thinking a lot about books and not simply like books that I want to read, but I'm thinking about my project as a book project, as a book that will eventually make its way into the world. Um, I am thinking a lot about what that, you know, the, the transitions from dissertation or the translations rather of from trans from dissertation to book manuscript but I'm thinking about the structure I'm thinking about presses I'm thinking about um you know strategically where I want my conversations to go and and you know the audiences that I'm that I want to to engage uh as I'm thinking about this this book um so I'm thinking about book so um there's this like added layer or kind of layer, I guess, is, is the most appropriate maybe phrase um, for me these days around book. So obviously I'm like reading books, but I'm like thinking about the book as a form and as a genre and like the academic market and the academic book genre. And 
you know, there's a lot that I, that I thought I knew. Um, but I'm certainly someone who is open to learning way more. And I feel like at this particular stage in my career, I am very much a sponge just trying to take it all in. Mm-hmm. So I've had quite a few conversations with colleagues and people about books and about academic publishing and books. And so that's really consumed my uh, kind of mental bandwidth these days, um, which is exciting. I, I, I'm excited. I think it's, it's uh, the thoughts as well as some of the writing that I've been doing geared toward that have really motivated me. So it feels good to have some motivation and, you know, some kind of internal deadlines about what that might look like in the future. So, you know, that's what I'm thinking about. And it's when I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I had quite a bit of tunnel vision, I would say that that has probably been why is because I'm, you know, trying to reassess and adjust some things in my calendar and in my own personal syllabus. And so I think that that's where I'm, I am these days. And that's what I'm thinking about. What about you, dear friend? What are you thinking? first of all thank you a lot for that i mean welcome you know as an english scholar i spend more time than i should think about books and and books as books and what is a book and what are the boundaries of a book and how do we make sense out of the book iciousness of an idea um and i and and so i appreciate that and i am happy for you to be sort of undertaking that journey um what have I been thinking about? Oh, you know, my week was a little bit derailed. So like I've mentioned this in passing, but like my partner lives with me uh, and I love him a lot and he's great. And I love him a lot and he's great. And I feel like I have to keep stressing that because it has been a rough week in our household because my partner works at a job where he has to like go outside the home every day and like be outside the home and like take the subway to work and then be outside the home for an eight hour work day and then come back home from work. And so, and this has been the case basically since like, maybe June they've been doing this and so they have like extended they've been taking temperatures and everybody's wearing masks and they've been aggressive about COVID protocol and yet and still uh this Sunday we were hanging out at you know making lunch or whatever and he got a call from his boss it was like hey so one of the people you were working with tested positive for COVID and so we're gonna need you to quarantine and stay home until you're able to and also get a test uh Uh, so stay home but also leave your house to go to the place that has testing uh and get a test and then you know maybe potentially isolate for the next two weeks um and 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 so i just want to live inside so again i love him i love him he's a great person when i tell you i was so fucking pissed like i can't my only reaction the old like not really fear not really just so angry because I like you right like have been working from home since last March last March have not been able to leave the house haven't seen my friends haven't seen my family I don't go to parties there was no Christmas there was no New Year's like all just doing everything I can to stay as safe as possible and here comes this fucking company just insisting COVID and so in credit to credit to them we don't have COVID. We, everybody tested negative. It was, it, we're all as well in our world. In fact, it looks like it may have been a false positive in the first place because the person who originally tested negative positive has also since tested negative. So mm. like, there's a lot of uncertainty about what exactly happened here, but it was just a chain reaction of me living inside of like, how 
how angry and so if it feels like this has been a week where i'm particularly angry about capitalism it's because i've it's been a week where i've been particularly angry about capitalism like if it weren't for this job that frankly pays like less than my job by a significant amount i would not be at risk how do you bring less into my house and expose me to greater risk how is that what we're doing to poor people all day every day not to say my Mm. partner is poor but like just like the reality is that there's no the more money you make the more comfort and security you have so like the people who most need to be comfortable are the people who are exposing to every conceivable risk and it's just like who cares like i guess the reality is you just have to what's he supposed to do not go to work for six months it's like work is in person now so you can either go to work or you can get fired in their place with someone who will and it's just and so if COVID just happens to show up I guess that's the risk we've all agreed to take because you had to eat food you selfish bitch and so I'm just like I'm I'm undone by just like what do you want from me I haven't left my house for a fucking year oh dear yep. friend yep yep yeah yes so I just you know two things Thank you for That's sharing. That's what I've been thinking about. <laughs> Two things. I'm glad you're well, you and your Me partner. Too. And to eat the rich. Just uh, again. But they all have COVID like... now. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Um, wow. I, I very fortunately have not had any direct exposure. Um, but that's scary. I mean, you know, I, I think having coming up on a year of going through whatever the hell this is, this, this fun that we're living through, um, it's, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm now a part of the class of people that is, um, I mean, you know, privileged because I don't have to go anywhere. Like I'm not required Absolutely. to be anywhere physically. And like, you know, I am in a new environment. I do not know anyone here um, other than, you know, colleagues who I'm only getting to learn um, as, as the year, you know, as my time here progresses. Um, and so, you know, I don't, you know, I don't go out. Like, I'm not going out to bars. I'm not going out to restaurants, even though, like, in Illinois, they just recently reopened for some god-awful reason. Um <laughs> and New York too. You know, the I week go to, I got my news about you might have COVID, they were also like, "But you can go to the restaurant. Applebee's just reopened." Mm. <sighs> Sorry, you were saying oh, Cuomo and um. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just I, the 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 risk and risk factors that exist in my life are are relatively low. I know, comparatively speaking, and, you know, I mean, even, I mean, I have, I have family who has been exposed in various ways back home in Texas in particular. Um, and, you know, Texas is the wild west as it were of this panorama. Um, they're just kind of like, you know, when, when they have running water and have, they have running water and, you know, electricity, they, you know, are out and about, um, Ah, that that that's a shit show if there ever was one um different <laughs> that man different went to cancun topic. he said no thank uh, you no thank you cannot I rather be in mexico said the blamed republican his, blamed the two little girls i mean and, but wouldn't we all rather I be mean, in mexico the, the one has suspicious eyes the one <gasps> has suspicious eyes 
Um, she got them from her mama, though. Um, no. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. COVID. You know, it, it looks like honestly, it's going to be here. I mean, it's it's it is it has fundamentally shifted human sociality for the rest of our lives. Um, and we are living through it, trauma and all, and it is, it, you know, sometimes I think about like the future, even though it's a very futile kind of thought engagement or thought, you know, game about like, you know, what, 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 what'll be like in a few years? Um, I think I read somewhere, or I read somewhere a few days ago that it will likely be until 2024 when we're like, you know, not masking and, you know, we, you know, if everyone takes a vaccine where we will have and reach a kind of global herd immunity, which will keep us, you know, out of this state that we're currently in. Um, and that just like really depressed me. Cause I was like, I, also it, it like pokes holes in the fantasies that I think we've all, or that I've been living in over the past at least of, three like, months. Vaccine as the vac- the race? Yes, like like as as it's as we are now in different phases of this pandemic. Yeah. And like what what kind of uh not significance, what kind of opportunities and potentials now exist that didn't exist a year ago, but then like to just now hear, you know, from various experts and you know, in the scientific field, we're like, well, actually, you know, we're probably going to be in like this for a little while years in fact i um, mean the reality is that like if we had been honest with ourselves we knew that from the beginning and that was the information that the most like honest scientists were giving from the beginning but it was never politically salient to say so the people we let go in front of microphones told us stupid shit like we'll be out of this by easter or well just make it till fall or uh but then come fall vaccines will be here and the reality has always been like no girl it's gonna be it's a pandemic like it's a new disease it's gonna run the cycle of a new disease right you know and i i completely just put in the back of my mind the beginning of this easter Easter. they told us we'd be done by easter oh what stop it i remember i remember the day they told us we weren't gonna have class anymore because i still had class like that afternoon and my students were in the building so i had to go tell them like hey guys this is the last day and we won't be coming and i all of them were like oh but like till like april right we'll be back before the end of the semester right i was like i don't know i think maybe fall maybe fall turns out um the other thing i'm thinking the other thing living in my brain rent free now is that i just got word and this may change fingers crossed it will but it looks like here in the land of cuny we're gonna be primarily distanced in fall too (laughs) i can't i mean i we shouldn't we we really yeah we should not be surprised but also like to know that like I, i feel like i'm also again uber privilege because i'm not teaching this semester and i'm not teaching it until the fall but i'm i know that it will have to be addressed by uiuc soon and i'm just waiting you know and uiuc has done a really great job of testing and keeping the positivity rate really low um i was looking at the numbers this morning on our dashboard which are kind of updated um every day and you know, there's like zero new cases in the faculty of the of the faculty who are testing, you know, 
all of the cases are happening in the undergrad population. Most of them are happening in the undergrad population, unsurprising. Um, but like the uh, like the, the the positivity rate is is like below even 0.5 percent. It's like 0. 0.0 something percent. Um, so I mean, it's it's it. We've done a decent job of containing it here. However, like we're not we're, we don't live in a vacuum. Right. It's not just the university here. Like we live in Champaign. We live in Urbana. Right. There, there are other there are communities. There are, you know, everything around. And we're not that far from Chicago. And that seems to be a hotbed or that, you know, seems to be a place where it's not as controlled, unfortunately. And so um, and I know a lot of students travel back and forth from there. So I'm just kind of gearing myself up to get that that inevitable message from either the chancellor or the provost being like, well, looks like because we've not been able to vaccine everyone vaccinate everyone that we're likely also going to be remote in the fall and you know i'm gonna do like i i will be remote like i'm just yeah i mean what, we've done it like what do we do it's not a question is the yeah. problem it's like nobody's asking for my opinion they're just telling me like the reality is you will not get to go back to your office until january of 2022 and i have not been to my office since march of 2020 and i'm burning through my motherfucking tenure clock and that's the part that concerns me right like mm-hmm. I, 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 I need this time to have a library that works and an office that works. Like I can't, I can't work so, like this. I mean, before we, before we kind of end the podcast with our kind of final segment on reading, I, I'm curious uh, because this is relevant to the conversation. Uh, I, UIUC, University of Illinois system um, and UIUC in particular, because I'm here, uh, the university has allowed us to take uh, a no questions asked tenure rollback. So I am, you know, my, my clock, I actually just got the, the start of the paperwork today um, that I will be taking, you know, this, what they've called the, the, the COVID-19 rollback year. So my clock will actually not be starting until fall of next year, which is a huge relief, right? But I was curious if that was something that was happening at CUNY or if that is nope. something that... Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. I mean, maybe it will. I think that's one of the union's main asks. But like, you know, ours is a union that has no shortage of asks. Um, and in these unprecedented times, less leverage than they'd like. And so yeah. I think that the reality is that we'll... I don't know. I mean, I, I almost don't want to say because I feel like I don't know enough to make that estimation. And yeah. so I guess we'll just wait and see. I, I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah. I, I well, live in confidence that my department is on my side and that they want me to get to tenure almost as much, if not more than I want that. Uh, and so mm. that's very comforting. But like, you know, my department can't run a library by itself. At some point, I'm going to need my actual library again. Right. Ooh. Yeah, so many... So many unknowns um, and the discomfort that that all brings. Endless. It's like being on the job market again, but your whole life is it. <laughs> Will I get hired? Is this forever now? Is this just life? Mm. Thought. So many thought. How about uh, we... All right. Palate cleanser. Palate cleanser. Friend. Palate cleanser. Deep breath. <sighs> what you're reading? I'm so glad you asked. James, I, right before we started recording today, one of my uh, dear friends, mentors, advisors, 
aspirations as an academic uh, or someone who I aspire to as an academic uh, hosted his book launch, uh, Noah Tamarkin, recently published uh, his first monograph um, entitled Genetic Afterlives, Black Jewish Indigeneity in South Africa out of Duke University Press. And I mean, he's brilliant. I have uh, a lot of my own thinking is indebted to, as well as informed by my conversations with uh, Noah. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that my understanding of uh, an introduction kind of direct foray into kind of feminist science and technology studies was ushered in by Noah um, and has given me so many amazing opportunities and feedback. And so uh, I've been reading his, his monograph um, and I, there are parts of it in the world in the form of journal articles. Uh, but I was, you know, having conversations with him <clears throat> as I reflect back on my late grad school days about him getting this monograph together. Um, so I guess that kind of ties into even what I was thinking in the previous segment about books and book, you know, what, what that looks like in the production of a book. And so, you know, we were having some of those conversations at the tail end of my grad school year. And so it was really wonderful to get to celebrate his work. And he had this kind of stellar group of academics um, all over the U.S. who uh, were a part of this book launch. And um, he's just brilliant. And, uh, you know, I'm deeply informed by his, by his own work and his ethnography and his interventions into um, especially, you know, interlocutors as, 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 theori as theorizers, right? So um, as a quick kind of synopsis, this book is about a, uh, a South African tribe, the Lemba, who uh, kind of claim Jewish ancestry through genetics um, and kind of work uh, through and work with kind of knowledges around, and knowledges produced around kind of genetics. So they're, the, it's a black tribe claiming Jewish ancestry. And they do so through all kinds of ways that Noah documents and kind of, um, highlights in his in his in his ethnography um and you know really i think that the kind of the the main point here is that he he really noah uh professor tamarkin does a really amazing job of centering um these otherwise uh voices and practices um and shows precisely how kind of gen knowledge is around genetics or um kind of Jewish ancestry kind of are forged by people, right? And that, uh, that that's, that's equally as part of the conversation around kind of scientific or technological uh, studies. And so it's just a really amazing work. Um, and so it was, it, it, it's also just like beautifully written, just like a, a great storyteller. So um, what I've been reading um, up until, you know, we just started recording. So what about you? What are you reading? Thank you for that recommendation. Really, this looks amazing. Um, yeah, I'm a fan. Um, what am I reading these days? I have been reading a lot about, you know, I'm writing this, I'm working on this 
project about uh, black young adult literature. And so these days I'm reading Who Writes for Black Children, which is about African-American children's literature before 1900. And it's sort of like so comfortably outside of my own sort of research area. I'm definitely looking at YA and so I'm definitely looking post 1970s. Um, and also this is, I think like, the great failure of my graduate school work from my own end, this was my failing, was that like I refused to engage seriously with like pre 1900s American lit uh, for all kinds of reasons that I'll give you if you have more time. But like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I just, I really struggled with it. And so I'm trying, I'm, I'm learning now as I'm doing the research to like look backwards as a way of anticipating forwards and thinking and reading differently. And so it's been really, really helpful just to have like an archive of like, how are people talking about this stuff? One of the things that's really great about this book is that it's both like a collection of scholarship, but then also some original like primary sources. And so in the back you get just like samples of like what were black children in the sort of 1900s or before the 1900s rather reading. Uh, and it's it's been really fascinating uh, and encouraging and the project is slowly but surely coming together and it feels like there might be a world where like this could be a book that other people who don't live inside my head could read someday. And that's exciting. Oh, very exciting. Thank you for sharing and for how it's informing your own kind of process. I think that that's uh, especially important um, and exciting just to kind of hear you think about that and how it relates to your own you know, developing thoughts um, and developing manuscripts. So that's really exciting. Um, and thank you for the recommendation. I'm in on the the site now on the the, the Minnesota site. Tanya, so. University of Minnesota Press, they're churning out some good shit over there. Yes, yes, they are. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think we have kind of rounded out, you know, the the podcast for today. I want to thank you, James, for the always brilliant, incisive, and just astute observations that you make. I think that I, I become better. I become a better thinker by thinking with you. So thank you. Same, same, same. Yeah. So this is Learning on the Job, and we will catch you next time. Oh, next time. See you soon. Bye for now. Bye.